Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today we'll be talking with our special guest, Tom Ackerman. Tom Ackerman is a Maine outdoors luminary, a fly fishing professional, and former national television host. Tom brings a lifetime of outdoors experience to share with our audience. Tom is a seasoned sportsman with a passion for sharing it with others. Tom hosted the New American Sportsman on ESPN for many seasons, celebrating the sporting experience with some of the biggest newsmakers of the day. From fly fishing in Belize with Liam Neeson, to sail fishing in Central America with NFL great Tony Gonzalez, to scaling Alaska's peaks in search of brown bear with Herschel Walker, or bugling elk in New Mexico with Hank Williams Jr., or climbing into a blind with World Series MVP Josh Beckett, and more. Tom is a registered Maine guide, a sea captain, an avid fly fisherman and big game hunter with a natural curiosity about people and their outdoor experiences. His work in the outdoors included 16 years with L.L. Bean, where he served as hunting and fishing product manager. Tom also helped develop one of the most successful fly fishing schools in the country, serving many first-time fly anglers through the L.L. Bean Outdoor Discovery School. In 1998, Tom formed his own company, Classic Connections, which provides worldwide travel and international trip planning services to hunters and anglers, specializing in exclusive fly fishing and hunting adventures in remote destination locations. When not filming for TV or guiding along the main coast, Tom enjoys spending time with his family and friends in the outdoors, photographing wildlife, hiking, camping, hunting, and fishing. Tom has a special affinity to fish for Atlantic salmon and upland bird hunting, wild turkey hunting, and also introducing young people into the outdoors through his careful influence. Tom lives in Topsom, Maine with his wonderfully talented wife of 35 years, Cindy Ackerman of L.L. Bean fame. Tom has four adult children, his oldest son, Chris, a stonemason and artist, Colin, a former fighter pilot, his recently married daughter, Sarah, and my destination fishing partner, T.J. Ackerman, who Tom and I affectionately referred to as Teej. Tom and I have shared many days together on the water, and I recently traveled with Tom in 2022 as a guest to Mackenzie River Lodge in Labrador, where we shared a wonderful week-long experience fishing together as friends for trophy landlocked salmon and huge brook trout. It was a memorable trip, and we were tremendously successful as a result of his guidance. On the heels of that experience, several friends and I are returning with Tom to Labrador in 2023 to fish out of Crooks Lake Lodge for trophy brook trout. Tom runs a very classy operation. Tom is gratuitous. Everyone loves Tom Ackerman, and so do I. Tom has an infectious and dynamic personality, and it comes with distinct pleasure to invite my friend, my brother, my mentor, Tom Ackerman, to the Flyline Podcast. Tom, let's do this. Mike, that's an awesome introduction, man. I'm sitting here thinking, man, I'd really like to meet that guy. He sounds like he's had a heck of a life. I know, I'd like to meet him, too. Hey, it's guy. really good to see you. Great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this ever since you first reached out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So for the audience, uh, we are at the Classic Connections HQ headquarters in Topsom, Maine. Tom's invited me into his home to record this, and he has a sign in his office that says, Gone hunting. Be back soon to go fishing. And I think that that really underscores the life that you've lived, Tom, here in Maine. Yeah, it really has, and um, you know what? I've just, I just—I don't know how it's worked, but it just has. But I've, it all started with a passion for hunting and fishing at a very, very young age, and um, I, you know, it's—it's it's an amazing thing. It's a thin thread that pulls you through life, but 
Um, for me, it started in New Jersey. Uh, believe it or not, people say, you're from Jersey? What exit? And we laugh it off. And I said, no, no, actually, where I grew up, there were more yeah. cows than people in the county that I lived in. Um, and so I spent a lot of time digging worms, getting on my bike, riding down to the creek, and fishing, and, uh, and then hunting for deer and rabbits and birds and all of that kind of stuff. And th those seeds were sown very, very uh, early on in my life for this lifelong love of the outdoors. And I credit my dad and my uncle for giving me that introduction, that proper introduction that's kind of stood the test of time. Real quick story, my, my earliest remembrance of fishing was going with my dad when I was about five years old to a place called Lake Hapatkong in a rented boat, a wooden boat that had the concrete uh, anchor that was in the paint can. Totally. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah. With, and, an eye, with an eye bolt. Exactly, yeah, with yeah. an eye bolt. Yeah. And, and, and the live well under the seat and a coffee can chock full of nuts as a baler. That's what we, that, and it was the, the highlight of my summer to be able to go with my dad. And I remember my dad was a pretty hard worker, didn't have a lot of time for fun and this kind of thing. But I remember him telling me, Tommy, we're leaving at five in the morning. I'm gonna knock on your door. If you're not ready, I'm leaving without you. And I remember going to bed that night fully dressed with my high top sneakers already <laughs> laced up. Because when I heard the knock on the door, I threw the covers back and I was on, you know, up and out. And uh, because that's how important it was. I think the fishing and time with my dad and all of those were kind of themes that ran through it. But uh, yeah, the outdoors has always been a very important part of my life. Brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have an older sister and a younger brother, and uh, I love them dearly. I can't believe it. We kid each other. I said, because my sister is like 72 now, my brother's 68, and I'm going, and I'm in the middle. And I said, you know, I don't know how it's happened, but I've gone from rolling stones to kidney stones in the blink of an eye. <laughs> yes. It's like way too fast to ride. How did this happen? And, uh, but it's been a great ride. And coming to Maine, Tom, so there you are. And also, just a side note, we did uh, a great podcast with uh, our new friend, Bob Romano, who's, who's actually from New Jersey, too. And he tells the same story. He and Trish live on uh, 12 wooded acres. They live in the country, very much so. Jersey out in the western part of the state is gorgeous, wild. Uh, they love it. Uh, but, okay, so there you are in Jersey. What was the ticket to Maine? What got you here? Yeah, well, it's a serendipitous thing, and it's a long and windy road. But I was working on a horse farm right across... Uh, the state line in New York, and the owner of the farm, his son, Joe Quirk, so I call it a quirk of fate that I ended up yeah. here, uh, Joe Quirk uh, went to NYA. He was at North Yarmouth Academy. Yeah, yeah. And so his dad said, can you help Joey get you know settled in, drive up there, help us get settled in uh, for his school years, junior year at NYA? I said, yeah, sure. So I hopped in the microbus, because this was back in the uh, 70s, like 73 or so, and we drove up, and I just fell in love with Maine. I absolutely fell in love. The first time I, we, we crossed over in Kittery and, and, we, and we got up to around Yarmouth, he took me down to the ocean. I'd never seen anything like that. I just looked around and I was slack, slack jaw. I said, this is about the prettiest place I've ever seen in my life. And, um, and so I made the decision at that point, a way, you know, long, long time ago, that this is where I wanted to put down some roots and, and, and spend my time. So uh, I applied to school at University of Southern Maine. Back then it was UMPG, University of Maine, Portland, Gorham, and uh, got accepted, and um, the rest is history. I, I started going to school there, and uh, I self-designed a major in environmental science, uh, but I spent most of my time just cherry-picking classes, whether it was entomology, ecological principles, ornithology, 
ichthyology, anything with an ology on it. Yeah. I wanted to learn, because I, I guess I'm a, like a self-made naturalist. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn as much as I could about everything that surrounded me as I, when I went out in nature. And it comes out when you're with Tom that you do have an affinity, not just a, an understanding of it, but an affinity and a love for it. It makes your heart go pitter-pat. Well, I appreciate that. And it's infectious. It's hard not to uh, to share it with others. <laughs> Some I remember taking a guy down the, the uh, Kennebec one time. He was a hard-charging A-type uh, a guy from uh, New York, New York, an accountant. And um, he'd hired me for a couple of days of striper fishing. And we, uh, I, we, I met him at the ramp. We got loaded up. I said, hey, Nick, it's going to be a great day. A lot of fish around. They've been on the bite. Uh, and so I said, let's go. So on the way down the river, I stopped at Ram Island and I pointed at the eagle's nest. And there were two adult eagles and an eaglet there. And we were right underneath it. It was a beautiful photo op. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, you know, if I wanted a bird tour, I'd have hired Audubon. <laughs> And I said, okay, I guess we understand each other. Let's, uh, let's go fish. Yeah. But I'm thinking to myself, dude, you're missing a heck of a party because there's so much more going on around here. If you just open your eyes and look, we had this, the seals hauled out on the rocks. Yeah. We had the ospreys circling and diving. We had the eagles. We had, there's just the great blue herons fit, you know, out looking for breakfast. And it's just like the coolest thing. I, my fondest memories are riding down that river at, at daybreak with that cool wind in my face and just seeing and uh, experience all of, all of that. Nick has probably got the hat that says, the tug is the drug. <laughs> I don't doubt it. And he counts them as like, that's number seven, Tom. <laughs> that's right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we talked a little bit about, you know, you guiding and fishing, but what was the what was the genesis of you guiding and fishing in Maine? When you first, okay, so you're, you're USM, right? Right, yeah, USM. You obviously had some off time, you started playing around. Yeah, actually, I were you, I, you were you a fly fisherman then? Um, yeah, I was kind of self-taught, yep. you know, with the uh, with the book under the elbow and you know, uh, you know, ten to two, ten to two, ten to two, um, trying as best I could. I think it was a Joe Brooks book or something like that, maybe Lee Wolf, um, on how to learn to fly cast. And uh, I was not very good at it, but it didn't matter. I had a five dollar. Uh, it was a Folsom rod, five dollar fiberglass rod. It had probably three guides on it, mm -hmm. you know, and. And it was bef way before uh, medalist reels. I could that was way out of my price range. So um, I, I can't even remember what it was on for a reel. But um, yeah, I started fly fishing when I was probably about 14 or 15. But uh, I always reverted back to uh, to worms until I moved to Maine. And then I said, no, this is definitely the right tool for the job up here. But I graduated from from college. I had a degree in environmental science with a, a kind of a a minor in fisheries biology and fisheries science. So I always wanted to work in that field. I'd worked summers for uh, Maine Fish and Wildlife as a Creel Census clerk on Sebago Lake, uh, and, and I loved that job. And I'm saying, this is great, you know, to get paid to do this. They give you a boat, and you know. Um, and so I did, did that for uh, the, the summers. And then uh, when I graduated, I actually went, started working for an instructor of mine that taught fisheries science named Evelyn Sawyer. She and her husband, Phil, had started a closed system aquaculture operation down in Arundel. And closed system, it wasn't the water re, uh, flow through like you see at most hatcheries. Yeah, here yeah. And so uh, anyhow, so the, the idea it was a commercial, supposed to be a commercial operation. We were raising Pacific salmon. I think they were pinks or 
chums or sockeyes or something like that. Anyhow, we got the eyed eggs, we, we raised them, and then we imprinted them. When they got to smolt size, which is about eight inches, before they go to salt water, that's where they imprint on their natal stream. And we said this, that the plan was to raise them to that level, release thousands of them into the ocean, and then a Mother Nature put the growth on. And then in three years, when they were sexually mature and coming back to reproduce, to spawn, uh, we would set up a drip station with the same chemical we had imprinted them on. So I mean, long-winded way of saying, we're gonna, our plan, we were very idealistic. And I said, we're gonna feed the world. Well, at the end of a year, I couldn't feed my family. I was making about a hundred bucks a week. You know, I had a wife, a new baby and a gun dog. And it's like, okay, who gets to eat this week? You know, type of thing. Uh, it was tough. So just to fill it in, Tom, you were, you were releasing them where? We were releasing those smolt into the Arundel River, which is right there in, in between Arundel and Kennebunkport. And expecting the Pacific salmon to do what? Well, they would go to salt water yeah. and they would feed and they would and they would grow and they would grow and they yeah. grow. And then when they got the urge in three years when they're sexually mature to return, they return to their natal stream, which they identify by olfaction, so, by smell. So Arundel. Arundel. They're okay. going to come right back up there. And they had already done this on the West Coast. Yeah. Domsey and Warehouser and Campbell's Soup mm -hmm. had these. It was called... Uh, um, what was it called? Sea ranching, I think. But anyhow, they it was uh, they would call them back to their up the fishway back into the hatcheries where they'd been spawned, and we said, oh, "This is great." And then we just count, you know we harvest them, take them to market, and we count our money. Mm. Well, the two days after we released probably ten thousand fish into this corner pool on the Arundel River, I drove down there, and I saw a flock of cormorants, just a raft of them in that pool. They were they couldn't they were too fat to fly. They were so full, and I said. There goes, you know, there, there goes, the, the, you know, this, the, the whole project. And so it was uh, disheartening. And that's when my wife and I had a very serious conversation about our future. <laughs> and so, so then what? Oh, so then I said, well, I had a friend, Timmy Parker, that worked at LLB. And he said, hey, we just lost a guy. He went to uh, Alaska to start a, a fishing shop up there. And we have an opening in the hunt fish department. Would you be? Yes, I'll be right down. And uh, so I went through the interview process. And I got a job on the second shift at the L.L. Bean Hunt Fish Department. And I said, oh, this is, this is cool. This is a good place for me to hang out while I get my resume together and find work in my field, right? Because my job, my dream job was to work for IFNW, right? Yes. And, uh, and, and be either uh, a fisheries biologist or assistant biologist or something like that. That's yeah. kind of the way I saw my career track going. So I, we actually share a similar background, Tom, because although I studied, I studied biology and science, I had almost like a double major where I was studying human science and I was also studying ecology, which is a study of ecosystems and animal behavior, as you described. And I also wanted to get into that. I was uh, aspiring to maybe get involved with like the Atlantic Salmon Federation or commission. And, but the McKernan, the McKernan administration, am I getting that right? Mm -hmm. Had just furloughed all the state workers. This was right. back in 94, 95. Right. There were no opportunities. People with PhDs were doing entry-level jobs just to hang on. Right. So I, you know, that this podcast isn't about me, it's about you, but we shared, you oh, know, yeah. I wanted to do that because it's very interesting stuff. Oh, it was. And, and but you know what? Some of the, some of the best things that ever happen are the things that don't happen. 
you know, and, and, and not getting that job turned out to be a real blessing for me. And uh, it, it resulted in a 17-year career at L.L. Bean. Tell me about it. Well, it was just, it was great. And um, I started in the hunt fish department. And I think everyone that works at Bean should cut their teeth at retail. Where you meet the customer face-to-face and uh, they would take you around the store. You know, you'd start hunt fish, but if they needed a sleeping bag or something, you would take them to that department. And... Um, so I uh, spent three years working that second shift uh, and, and really loved every bit of it. And then a, a, a position opened up for a, a, a store buyer. So basically to buy the Huntfish product for the retail store. And I'm thousands, a kajillion SKUs, everything from Sampo snap swivels, you know, up to sage rods and everything in between. And so um, uh, I did that for a couple of years and I loved it. I, I mean, it was a lot of work, um, but it was worth it. And uh, we kind of expanded, um, it be, instead of just being fly fishing and, and a little bit of general fishing, we kind of blew the doors open on the general fishing and beefed up fly fishing at the same time. We added archery. And so it was during those really growth years that, I mean, I really enjoyed um, the, the, the work, although my wife says, you know, it's, it's a crazy job. You spend a lot of time at it. When was this, Tom? This was in um, 1983. Perfect. Yeah, 84. So you were 85. there for the explosions that happened. Exactly in right. That was the preppy boom, and and uh, and then later on when we were doing the fishing schools, it was during the river runs through it, uh, boom. And so um, it, timing is everything, as they say. And uh, so that that was a great great run, and uh, I met um, my future boss, a guy by the name of Scott Sanford, who's the hunting fishing product manager. And uh, we just really gelled, and we worked really well together as a team. Um, I became assistant product manager, and 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 then and then later on product manager for Hunt Fishing. So basically, it was uh, LL Bean um, was was almost a billion dollar company back then, and fly fishing and and hunting uh, constituted about three or four million. So it's a, a kind of like pocket change or a rounding error. And I would always tell folks operating. A hunt fish store in the inside of LL Bean is kind of like running a candy store in in the midst of General Motors. You know, everything is by exception, you know. But yeah. but it was uh, it was great run and uh, and so we we went from just doing um, the hunt fish products to doing the fly fishing school. But they also did it really well. I mean, there were some there were some companies like Abercrombie and Fitch or whatever that right. really were not positioned. I mean, they were selling fishing equipment back in the day, but. Uh, you know, you guys were really the, the, the boots on the ground people actually using the product. Tom Ackerman was fishing with a rod he was managing to promote. Right. And what is a product manager, Tom? Just tell me what that means a product for the audience. Yeah, no, no. A product manager is someone who's uh, responsible for that entire category. So all the new products, the relists, uh, keeping up with it, the market trends, the new products, uh, the new uh, materials for rods and reels and all that type of thing. Um, basically, do all the merchandising. They do all the new product development, and um, and then they do the catalog production, and and even get involved in the marketing side as far as putting together the mailing list. So who's going to get that? One of the big things for us was to get uh, a a specialty catalog, fishing a fly fishing specialty. Which you own. did, Which yeah, you exactly. Did. And right, we pulled that product out of just the general mailing where it was in there with the shirt dresses and the chamois shirts and the bean boots and all that kind of stuff. And it was a, it was a standalone. The other big uh, change and kind of that really fueled the growth for us was we brought in Dave Whitlock. 
That was back in the early 80s. Who's Dave Whitlock? Dave Whitlock, who just I, recently... You know, I know who he is, but for our audience. Away, yeah. Dave Whitlock was just a remarkable human being who loved fly fishing and loved sharing it with others. He was an artist. He was a scientist. Um, he was a gifted teacher and instructor and presenter. And he also became our uh, consultant as a product consultant, market consultant, and as the head of the Bean Fly Fishing Schools. Right. So he, I want to say Dave was from Arkansas. Yep, Arkansas, right? yeah. And Dave has recently passed away, as Tom said. But Dave, Dave was also, I think, really one of the first people in Maine fly fishing to make it that bass was not a four-letter word. Right. He showed myself, some of the people that have mentored me, uh, Danny Legier as an example, right. uh, that bass is a hell of a lot of fun and you can become good with a fly rod as a result. And right. he took it on, uh, that was his thing. Oh, it definitely was. I mean, yeah, oh no, he developed a, a whole line of products. We have rods designed for bass fishing and he had his fly selections and, and whatnot. But you know, he had a great philosophy on fly fishing. He says, you know, our, our, our approach is that any fish that's fun to catch is more fun to catch on a fly. And so, and I, you know what, I, as you know, Lefty Cray and, and uh, uh, so many of the other guys, if you pin them down and say, okay, what's your favorite? If you could only fish for one fish, what would it be? Most of them would tell you smallmouth bass because they eat top water, they jump. They're a wonderful, wonderful uh, game fish. And we have tons of those in Maine. And Dave recognized that and he targeted those. And he developed a whole system of angling those from top to bottom, popping the top. He had so many different things. He was so, so creative. Yeah, and it, 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 you, what I enjoy about it, Tom, and I know you and I have done a lot of bass fishing together uh, out of my boat, is uh, you can wear a pair of shorts and 75 degrees out and fish right in the middle of the day. You're never going to catch a brown trout. You'd have to right. be in another side of the equator to do that. Exactly. But here in Maine, you and I can drive 25 minutes and be in a piece of water where we can catch one fish after the other right. on probably whatever fly. I mean, you remember the last time we fished? Yep. We put one fly on and we never took it off. Right. right? And we took some really nice smallmouth. That's right. Too. Yeah. And so that's, you know what? The, I love catching stripers. I love oh, yeah. catching smallmouth. I mean, if you're in Maine, oh, those are the two main attractions right now. So back to beans, Tom, before we depart from that, yeah. um, you had gone from being uh, someone doing retail on the floor and then you started working in product management. Um, can you think of an example of how you moved the company? In, Tom actually had an influence. I know at the, the fishing school, but can you think of just maybe even another example? Like you decided, hey guys, I think we should bring on this product. Or hey guys, I think we need to move away from this product. Right. You got anything oh, yeah. there? Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's a good question. The, uh, one of the things that we knew early on was if we're going to be a, a factor in the fly fishing industry, we needed to have a line of rods that would anchor the program. As people say, oh, those are great rods. And so we set up about developing the best fly rods that money could buy. And uh, we worked with uh, G. Loomis, with Steve Rajeff. I worked really closely with Steve back and forth, back and forth mm -hmm. on the different tapers. And um, we came out with the double L line of fly rods from a three weight all the way up to a 12 weight and, and, and everything in between. And those were state of the art in terms of the, the carbon fiber that was being used and the, the manufacturing process and all of that. So we put beautiful hardware on it, blah, blah, blah. But the, uh, the fact is, and maybe the highest praise that I'd ever received was from a fellow named uh, Mel Krieger who is just a, amazing, he's also passed, <laughs> but he was an amazing 
uh, fly casting instructor. Yes, he was. And uh, he said that probably the most consistent line of fly rods that he was aware of that he had fished were the bean double L rods. Yes. And so I hung my hat on that for a while. That was like, um, that was high praise. Yeah, and you had a lot going, you know, a lot, you have a, a lot of advantage in the market for a couple reasons, which I'll mention in a second. I just want to go back because I, I talked to some people that listen to the podcast and they go, these name dropping, I don't know who they, Steve Rajaf uh, has won more casting, fly casting distance competitions than Lance Armstrong and Michael Phelps have received awards. Right. This guy is the undisputed fly casting champion of the world. Right. And his brother, Tim, Tim Rajaf, uh, it could also, I mean, he could cast a foot away from his brother. These guys are right. the, they're, they're the rock stars. They're the David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen of the fly casting world. Right. Not only could they play, but they also designed and built guitars too. I yeah. mean, you know what yeah, I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. So they, these guys are building in a, uh, uh, Tim has a line right now of yep. rods, Echo. Echo. Right, yeah. great rods, I have a couple. Right. And uh, Steve always worked with Loomis. Yeah. So back to L.L. Bean, thanks for letting me get that out. Yeah, yeah. So what, ben, the other thing that L.L. Bean had going on is, so here I am in Maine and I've watched a river runs through it and I want to get into fly fishing. And yeah, I could go buy an Orvis rod, which has a 25 year guarantee, or I could go buy a Sage rod, which has a lifetime guarantee, but I have to pay some money to make that happen. Right. If you bought an L.L. Bean guide model, nine foot, six weight, which is what you wanted, right? right? right. Um, you just walked into the flagship store, if you broke the tip on it, and they yep. hand you another one. Absolutely. And there was momentum there. Right. That everyone in Maine that fly fished had an L.L. Bean rod, yourself and I included. Right, right, right exactly. So. Well, we had to do something because there was, uh, unlike Orvis and many of the other um, manufacturers, we, we really had one place where customers could come and try their rod, and that was in Freeport. If they wanted to come and try it before you buy, or they could plunk down their money, have the rod shipped to them, they could try it, say, I like it or I don't like it, and send it back. But, you know, there we didn't have... Uh, outlets all over the country where people could walk in, put a reel on it, take it out back and say, oh, you know, I this is the taper I like. This is the action I'm looking for right here. And so we had to, uh, you know, we had to leverage the uh, guarantee, the 100% you know, money back yourself. No one else had it. Exactly. And we even took it a step further with the double O rods. And we had, a, uh, it was called 1-800-SIN-ROD. It was a double O express. And it's a, it was a card, like a credit card that when they bought one of those rods, it would come with it with an 800 number. And if they were anywhere in the continental United States and they broke a rod or they had a problem with their rod, they would call that number and we would FedEx a rod to them at no charge. And then, by the way, when you get home, if you could send that rod back so we can do a post-mortem on it. But again, we're leveraging that that guarantee that says we're going to, you know, we believe in what we sell yeah. and we're going to stand behind it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was listening just today on, on NPR's piece about, you know, how the brain operates and you, it's not just about lowering the price. It's not just about making the quality better. It's those little things right there because you and I have both been bit by that dog where you break a rod and you still right. got five days left in your trip. Right. And you're going to have that rod replaced in a day or two. And the other thing I learned just years back about L.L. Bean, and they've always done this part well, is uh, if you ask any person when the uh, consumer, just in general, is speaking, so where, you know, how do you decide where you're going to do business in a brick and mortar? Well, the answer is not price. The, they were open is the answer. Ah, right. The second one is I had a good experience there. Right. 
And I expected if I was to make a meaningful investment in a new product, right. uh, that that experience would also go well. And if I have a problem, it'll go well. Right. Well, there's no locks on the door, and there was a lifetime guarantee for most right. of my entire life. Right. So what a great place to work. And you right. had a lot of confidence working there, Tom. Oh, yeah. And it was a great company. Like I said, it was... Uh uh, they basically had the same core themes and values that I did. You know, treat people the way they want to be treated, and they'll always come back. So, you know, good quality merchandise at a reasonable price, and uh, they'll always come back for more. But it was, uh, yeah, that was a, a really good point that you just made. Is as I traveled for Bean, and I'd be on a plane somewhere, and people say, "What do you do?" I work at LB. Oh, we love LB. And I say, "Really? What do you love about LB?" I'm thinking they're going to say the chamois shirts or the shoes or what. They said, "No, you know what." We had a problem with you with something, and you guys made it right. And I said, "Wow, there's something to be said." We, we did not win the Malcolm Baldridge Award for excellence. We came in second. This is a long time ago, but it was a, like the coveted award in all businesses across the U.S. And right. it, was, it was awarded to Motorola that year. And when they did the debrief and they explained to why Bean did not win it, they said, "Because your customer service is too good." And we said, "Well." How could that be? And they said, customer service exists to resolve problems. And they said, if you did a better job of anticipating those problems, you would deal with them upstream and they would never result in customer dissatisfaction downstream. And I said, I mean, I thought about that for a long, hard time. And it, it makes sense. So, yeah. you know, but I also think there's something to be said for screwing up and making it right. That's where you build that bond with the customer yeah. that says, you know what? I can trust those guys. And, and LL back when he first made the boot, he had 90-something percent failure in the first year, and he did that upstream. He said, I'm going to change how I make them. I'm not going to make them. I'm going to find the people that make the boots better than anybody else in the right. world, and that's what he did. Right. So he, he had that vision. And he also refunded those yeah. 90 pairs right. when he didn't have the money to refund, but he made it, you know, he just he made it work. So um, before we go to break, Tom, let's segue into your guiding. And I'm going to drill right at a, a story I want you to tell, because yeah. you told it to me recently, maybe in the last year or two in one of our trips or somewhere. Um, you're working in the L.L. Bean Discovery School. You're up at Grants or Grand Lake Stream or something, and you're down and you're teaching. you got a group of students. Can you remember where this story's going? Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. it had to do with guiding yes. and a warden. Oh, yeah. Tell me the story. Well, I, I get sweaty palms just <laughs> hearing you tell the story because even though it was 30 years ago, it's still really fresh. And, uh, yeah, we, we were doing the intermediate fly fishing school out of uh, Weatherby's. And one of the places that we uh, would teach was at the hatchery pool. We'd bring all the students down there, and the instructors would, would go out on the water, and we'd work with them. We'd go over nymphing technique or swinging streamers or that type of thing. And so uh, we're down there with our group, and uh, it's middle of the afternoon, so we're not really uh, affecting the fishing. There's nobody down there fishing. And um, this uh, warden wanders up to the bank and sits there and watches for a while. And I could see he was, you know, processing everything that was going on. And so I said, yeah, maybe I'll go over and introduce myself. That's so, what you would do. Yeah, right. So I walked <laughs> over, and he said, what are they doing? And I said, they're... They're instructors. It's on-water instruction. And he goes, that looks like guiding to me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, yeah, but it's on-water instruction. He says, it's a distinction without a difference. And he said, listen, before you come back here, I recommend you get all of those guys their guides license. And I said, sir, yes, sir. 
And you did. And we did. And we went we went through the process in the in the uh, intervening year, and everyone passed. And it was I mean it's a nice marketing thing to say that your instructors are also yes. registered main guides. And they and now that's because they need to be. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's talk about your guiding. So you're living in the Topsom area, and you know you've got stripers all around you. That had to have been where you wanted to put your crosshairs if you were going to be doing some guiding. Oh, yeah. And that's sure. what you did. Yeah, yeah. Tell me the story. Well, I mean, as you know, or maybe our listeners don't know, but that that, that time of year was, uh, or that, that time was back in the ni early 90s. And um, I had a, a small boat. It was a 16-foot Fisher SV3 aluminum deep V-hull, 40-horse Yamaha, and it was perfect for that uh, shallow water fishing in the Kennebec. And it had a Baumata trolling motor, which was even better. And um, so I said, well, what the heck? Um, I had... Uh, you know, had had left Bean at that time, and I said, "Gee, my wife says, you know, they they stopped sending the checks. You need to find <laughs> you need to find a way to make some money, you know, mortgage and all that other stuff." And I said, "Oh yeah, okay." Um, and so, uh, you know, I started guiding on the Kennebec. I actually had developed really good friendships with some of the folks that had gone through the schools, and uh, they reached out to me uh, first, and so they became kind of the my my first clients that I guided and I really loved it. I mean, I absolutely looked forward to every day of guiding. What Tom's not telling you is this was the heyday when the fishing was really, really good, right? Oh yeah, they, these were big fish. I mean, 20, 25 pound fish. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a remarkable fishery. It, it was the heyday and um, I mean, I've, I've been around long enough to have gone through some of the lean years and then after the 90s, uh, early 2000s, it, all, all, the striper fishery took another downturn. And um, actually, I sold my boat at that time because the fish stopped coming back in fishable numbers. Um, but they made another rebound. But it, guiding was something I loved doing. And I did, many days I did doubles. And uh, I would do a morning and come back, wash the boat out, re-rig tackle, check emails and so forth, take a nap, and, um, and then be right back on the water again at four or five and fish till dark. And I remember I was still doing that when I was 50, and my wife said, you know, you're not a kid anymore. How long are you going to do this? And I said, until I don't want to or I can't. And neither of those had happened. And I still absolutely love that. Like I said, if I had to pick one place to be, uh, it would be, you know, for the summer on the lower Kennebec because I think, I think it's still one of the best fisheries in the world. And the, the places that you like to fish down there, you've taken me to a few, and it is just quintessential Maine. It's yeah. gorgeous. Oh, yeah. no, it you is. see it and it changes with the tides and the birds are coming in and out and the sunsets. I mean, I've just, yeah. the lower Kennebec, I mean, we just interviewed the governor, uh, Janet Mills, uh, recently for the podcast and she she kind of flowers about the Kennebec. Oh, it's, it's, just, very, it's special. It's it, a very, very special place. It is. It is a special yeah. place. Well, Tom, I think we are at a good spot to take a break. And when we come back, I do want to talk a little bit more about your guiding and how that segued into you creating a travel business, Classic Connections, because uh, that that's really important. And the other thing, too, we never talked about how you and I met. And I think maybe we'll come back from the break with how we met. And uh, so everyone stick around. We're going to do a fly line flashback and come back and speak with my friend Tom Ackerman in the second half. This fly line flashback features the legendary Maine fly fisherman and television host, Gadabout Gaddis. Roscoe Vernon Gaddis, known professionally as Gadabout Gaddis, was a 20th century American fisherman and television pioneer. Gaddis was born in Mattoon, Illinois, and was nicknamed Gadabout by a boss 
who said he could never find him. Gaddis moved to Bingham, Maine and Gadabout Gaddis Airport in that town was his base of operations. The airport was built about 1950 and later bought by Gadabout. Gaddis was an avid fisherman since his youth in Illinois. He began his career in the early days of television by showing his home movies of his fishing expeditions to friends, family, and neighbors. In 1939, he briefly hosted a program about fishing on General Electric's experimental television station in Schenectady, New York. In the 1940s, Gaddis returned to the station to host Outdoors with Liberty Mutual, which was only the second sponsored television program of its kind. Gadabout combined flying and fishing when he received his pilot's license in 1952 and purchased his own airplane, using it to take him to fishing spots throughout the country and to shoot for his new television series. Going Places with Gadabout Gaddis premiered in the 1950s, and beginning in the early 1960s, Gaddis starred in The Flying Fisherman, also sponsored by Liberty Mutual, that brought him household name recognition in the outdoor community and television. Gadabout also worked as a traveling salesman for a fishing tackle company and fell in love with the upper Kennebec River Valley. As a traveling spokesperson, he fished every state in the United States and much of Mexico and Canada. He claimed that fishing is more than just catching fish. It's soaking up nature and all of its marvelous wonders. Gaddis was nominated for an Emmy Award in 1968. Gaddis earned his Army Air Corps pilot's wings during World War I and flew to each filming location in his Piper Cherokee 235. Each episode would open with a shot of Gadabout Gaddis landing his plane. Gadabout brought alive a wandering spirit. His optimism for life and people was contagious. He made a lasting impression, which has affected many to this day. Gadabout was and will forever be a Maine fly fishing and television legend. And now, back to the second half of our podcast. So, uh, Tom, welcome back from the break. And I think we left off in a good spot. I know I want to talk to you about classic connections and, and the, uh, the, the, how that started, the brainchild behind that. But before we do that, we never really got the opportunity to explain to the audience how you and I first met. And I remember we may have been introduced at a, a fishing show, Somerset, uh, Marlboro, something like that, because I feel like I had an image of who Tom Ackerman was. It might have been even at a CCA banquet right. uh, down at the atrium yeah, or something that, like that. that could be. That's but we never really got introduced until you came out and fished in the drift boat with Teach. That's right, that's right. Do you remember how that oh, happened? Oh, of course I do. I remember calling the main fly shop. I don't know if I talked to Danny or to or Penny, but I said, hey, look, I'm, I need, I'm looking for a, a day for my son and I to come up and fish the East Outlet. Uh, I've got a 14, 13 or 14 year old son. He's kind of new to fly fishing. He's had a little bit of experience, but not much. And I need someone who's not just a good guy, but also a good patient instructor and hopefully someone with a good sense of humor too. And they said, have we got the guy for you? So they, they booked us with you, and that turned out to be one of the best things, one of the best days that we've ever had. And it may have uh, turned the tide for TJ, and, and, and again, the, the, the lifelong love of fly fishing may have been sealed on that day, and I'll tell you why. Because his experience and his introduction to fishing was with an uh, overzealous 
guide dad, okay, yeah. that yeah. took him out in the boat on the Kennebec, and it was in full-blown guide mode, and he was 9, 10, 11 years old. We'd pull up to, um, like, Goat Island, and there'd be some happy fish, big, nice stripers rolling on top, and I'd hand him a rod, and I'd say, come on, come on, come on, gas, right there, right there, right there. I said, come on, they're not going to do this all day, and uh, pretty soon he reels up, he puts in the, the rod in the, in the rod holder, and he sits down. I go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm done. I'm done, Dad. I can't take the stress. I can't take the pressure. And I just realized, you know what? I maybe need to tap the brakes a little bit, you know? And I, I would, that's when I knew I had been guiding too much. And you, you made the difference because you turned fly fishing into something that was fun. Yeah. And he loved it. I still have uh, pictures of him smiling, smiling so big that his face hurt. Yeah. Okay. And I remember him catching a fall fish on a nymph down there on the East Island somewhere, and you catching that fish and then showing him, the, you know, and yeah. holding it up and showing it to him, and then running to the the length of the boat and jumping into his lap, and and I snapped a picture of you there in his lap, and he had the biggest smile on his face. He didn't see that coming, and neither did I. And I said, you know what? I like this guy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, you made you made it into a wonderful experience, and one he still talks about today. Well, you know, the seeds were sown back then, but he, you're still his favorite fishing partner. Yeah, and so we, and not you know, so time passes. Uh, TJ grows up, and uh, just a couple of years ago, I want to say, was it three years ago, we went to your family's property in yeah. uh, Raymond, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you commissioned me to take him out because now. He is serious about fly fishing. Back Very then, we were just planting seeds. Now the, right. the plant has sprouted from the soil. He's he's actually asking questions. He's buying equipment. He's reading. He's right. Oh yeah. And so you wanted him to really sharpen up that cast. Right. And so that's what we did down there. Yeah. Did it in short order. Oh yeah. Less than an hour's time. We had him throwing a, a dart. Oh yeah. And then uh, of course that led into us going to uh, Mackenzie Lodge. Right. And so Teej uh, joined us from Mackenzie Lodge and his. We're going to talk later about the heart attack because we got to do that. <laughs> right. But, right. you know, he could have spent the time. Yeah. But, uh, no, he's a great fishing He partner. wanted to fish with yeah, you. Yeah, and we did. I, yeah. yeah. And this was over the, the Father's Day, so I was really, really grateful. I got a card. Yes. In the cabin. Oh, yeah. And then he says, hey, I'm, all, I'm out of here. Mike and I are headed up to Quartzsite to fish for the day. And I said, kill him. Murder him. Yeah. Just go. And uh, that was, uh, it was wonderful. Just spending that time with you guys in that setting. And, you know, for me... The, the, these trips, I and mean, I've been on some wonderful trips. I've been, I've fished all the world over from Alaska to New Zealand. I say A to Z, and most places in between. But the most important thing for me is who else is going to be there? And if I'm with friends and family, okay, that that makes the trip worthwhile for me. That that's what makes it fun and memorable. You know, you build these memories that are going to last a lifetime. Yeah, and I was telling you know we're 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 in full anticipation mode for this summer's trip that we're taking together with my friends Chris and Chris and, right. and yourself and and whoever else joins us in the end. But we all get it. it it's not it's about getting ready for the trip. It's right. about the thought, the planning of it. Um, I'm not worried about catching that big fish. That's going to happen. Either right. it's either going to happen or it isn't. Right. But the thing that we can control is we can control that we're going to have a great time, yeah. and that goes that comes back to the attitude. Exactly. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, right, too. Right. Let's get back to Tom Ackerman's kind of career. You're coming through. You're gone away from L.L. Bean. You're out on the Kennebec River guiding. Right. But you can't do that in February, Tom. No, no, no. That's so right. So you must be trying to figure out, like, what's the next rung on the ladder going to be? And I think it turns into doing some travel. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's and this is the way that came to, 
to be is um, I left Bean in early October and um, it was a, a time of what I call serious transition. I was at a major crossroads in my life, okay? I've done this for the last 15, 16 years. What do I want to do for the next 15 or 16 years, right? Good time to take a step back, take inventory, figure out who I am and what matters most in my life. And the best way i found to do that is to go fishing. And so I packed up my beater of an explorer, uh, fishing and hunting gear, because it was October, and I headed to one of my favorite places in the world, which was Nova Scotia. And I hooked up with a dear friend of mine up there named Perry Monroe. Perry, uh, Bill Taylor from the ASF says, Perry may not be the best Atlantic salmon guide in the world, but he's the best known. And I, I really count uh, my, counted among my greatest blessings to know this guy. He's a wonderful guy. And um, just uh, an old hippie, organic, loves to fish, loves to hunt grouse, um, is an amazing salmon angler and guide. And he uh, had a beat up old uh, Chevy Suburban and it was hand brush painted red. And I remember bebopping around these back roads in Nova Scotia with him, stopping at the Irving station to get a cappuccino and his wet dog in my lap, you know, on our way to the next pool on the Marguerite. And uh, he pulls over and he says, you know what I think you'd be good at? And I said, Perry, I've been trying to figure that out for 40 years. <laughs> what, what, what do you think I'd be good? He said, I think you'd be a good booking agent. I said, really? I said, what's that? I had no idea what a booking agent was. He says, well, he says, you've been to so many places and you know so many people. Why don't you put them together? And you can share some of these wonderful places with people that would really appreciate them. And I said, huh, I don't know how to do that. But I came home and I started to do my homework. And I contacted the guy who ran Angler's Adventure, yes. Chip Bates. And I said, Chip, I'd like to come down and talk to you. And he said, sure, come on down. So I walked in, I sat down with him, and we talked for maybe a half hour, 45 minutes. I said, Chip, you've got like 15 minutes to talk me out of getting into this business. And after 15 minutes, he told me the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, I said, you know what? He said, have at it, man. It's a, you know, it's a big pond we're fishing in, and he says, you, 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 I think you'll do well. So I printed up some cards, and I, I started, uh, I, I made a booth, and I started hitting the show circuit, and uh, that was an education, uh, because most of my trips were pretty expensive, you know, and uh, there were a lot of tire kickers, uh, and one of the guys, is, I thought this was hilarious, I had a, a, a guy, a exhibitor next to me, and I said, hey, how's the show going after two or three days? And he goes, oh, a lot of whistling gophers. I go, what, what's a whistling gopher? He goes, well, you know, they come into your booth, they look around, and they go, what's that gopher? And you tell them, and they go, <laughs> gopher. <laughs> whistling gopher. Whistling gopher. What's that gopher? And I said, I know exactly what you mean. So I did that, uh, the show circuit, for a few years, and I did a lot of calling and a lot of direct mail, and I did all of that kind of stuff. And what I realized was the best thing for me was to pick up the phone and call a friend yeah. and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. And, or I'll say, I've always wanted to fish for, I said, you fill in the blank. And, uh, and that's how class, that was the genesis, that's how Classic Connections got started. But I wanted to take it beyond just what I call dialing for dollars, yeah. booking trips. And I said, well, let's see, let's see what I can draw upon from uh, an experience standpoint. And I said, well, you know what? The L.L. Bean fly fishing schools, then you've got the travel piece, and then you've got the tackle. So I did all of the merchandising at Bean for the for fly fishing, and I also you know helped to hold the reins for the fly fishing school. So I taught a lot of people how to fish. So I said, what what if we developed a strategy around the travel business that includes travel, tackle, and technique? 
Yeah, you're okay. great at it. You're perfect for the, it. The travel yeah. piece speaks for itself. It's the right destination yeah. at the right time, not a shoulder, you know, week or anything. It's like the prime time. Right. Okay. And then the other is a really buttoned-up bring list of exactly what you're going to need, right down to the flies and the leaders and all that kind of stuff, clothing, bug spray, everything. Okay. So that's the uh, the 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 tackle piece. And then the next one is the technique. Okay. Maybe you're going to the Bahamas for the first time, and you're going to be throwing an eight weight into the wind for bonefish and um, you're going to be casting from a moving platform you're going to have the rod in one hand the fly in the other about 40 feet coiled on the deck and you've got a guide on the polling platform he's going to say uh, bonefish mon 50 feet coming coming now okay cast now cast now you're going to have a window of about five seconds to roll cast shoot some line on the back cast and present that fly in front of that fish and it's going to happen like that real quick so i said what if I could get you a lesson? Because you, you haven't done this before. Oh, that's what if right. I, what yeah. if I can get you a lesson with a certified casting instructor who can help you deal with the wind, maybe teach you the double haul, so that when you get there, you have the skills and confidence to really enjoy yourself? Because as a guide, you must know, one of your greatest frustrations, and as most guides, are people that show up and they can't close the deal. <clears throat> well, yeah, it's, 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 it's the small details, too. It's... Uh, you know, they say you got to uh, don't sweat the petty details, just pet the sweaty ones, Tom, right? But no, really, here's an example. Um, if you're Tom Ackerman and you're setting up a trip for bone fishing, what very few people would know, but you and I would know, you can't just take an eight-weight floating line bone fishing. An eight-weight bone fish line right. has a static core. Right. So when you set the hook on a slip strike right. with 11 pounds of pressure, 11 pounds of pressure is translated on the other end. So... Right. You don't get that if you just go to the Bahamas with your wife on a vacation exactly. and go out with a guide because exactly. that's how mistakes get made. Right. And you didn't bring the right flies. And you right. didn't know that. But think of the money you saved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's my <laughs> mantra. Think oh, of yeah. the money you saved. Right. So that's what you were doing, Thomas. You were basically setting people up for success. And you've done it now for me. So I thank you for that. Oh, just you're welcome. Wonderful trips that you provide. Uh, I love it. And like I said, my passion in life is helping people enjoy the outdoors. And if I can do that through the right location, the right tackle list, and the technique so that you have everything you need when you get there. My goal, real simple, is to become your trusted advisor for all things fly fishing. And uh, w and it must be working because the return rate or the, you know, I, I mean, most of the guys that I'm I'm working with, I've worked with for many, many years, and I'm working with their kids and their grandkids now. That's right, and that leads right into my next question, Tom, is how has Classic Connections, from when you printed your first business card to today, because it's still going, Right. Uh, you know, you're still putting together some great trips. Like you're getting ready Thanks. to go down to Louisiana this winter. Yeah. Um, that's a conversation I'm not out on yet. Right. Um, right. But uh, everyone should take a look at what Tom offers because he does a great job. But again, back to the original question: buying the business card to where we are today. How did the baby change? How did it grow up? Well, I think it started with just learning to listen. I mean, ask a question and shut up. I mean, that's the hard part for a lot of us because. You know, we're pretty good talkers. And it's like finding, doing the whole needs assessment. Well, Mike, tell me about yourself. What's your fly fishing background? I mean, what, what, how would you categorize yourself as a fly caster? Where have you fished? Okay, um, how long would you like to go for? Who else is going to be there? What kind of budget have you got? Okay, and then just listen. And then you say, can you leave it with me for a couple of days? Because I, I have a couple of ideas, but I'd like to flesh them out. Absolutely. So I get back touch them a couple of days. So it's it's a dance. It's that it's that progress. It's not just like dialing for dollars and booking trips and saying, hey, wow, 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 wow. No, tell me about yourself. 
and, and you develop that relationship that's yeah. based on trust. It is. And uh, that I've really, really enjoyed because, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to send someone on a trip that I wouldn't want to go on, right? I mean, it's just like my my business is based on repeat business. Repeat and referrals. And, and referrals, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think the thing that I've learned most is uh, new places and new faces are the lifeblood of any business. So it's like always trying to keep up. Uh, with the new destinations, um, you know, we're, we're not going to be, we, we, we've booked all over the world, like I said, from Alaska to New Zealand and, and most of the places in between, some wonderful places. And what I look for, people say, well, how do you evaluate a lodge? How do you know whether it's going to be a classic connections type of lodge? And I said, well, there's five things I look for. One is the resource. If it's not world class, there's no reason to go there, right? And the second is the management. Who runs this place? Okay, my dad used to say, before you get on a ship, check out the captain. Okay, who is the manager and who's the, and, and, and the owners? And the next is, tell me about the uh, guides, because you're going to spend most of your time there. And they can a good guide can make or break a trip. You'll spend most of your time with them. And um, so... Uh, oh, that's a, great, that's a great point, Tom. And, and I think that um, I do... I, I loved it, if you don't mind. Let's touch on one point. My, my next question... Uh, is going to be about times when you went and had an experience and you didn't find those things that you were looking for. You know, I can't say that I have, and I think the reason for that, Mike, is that most of the places that I've uh, added to our inventory are ones that have come highly recommended from guys that I trust who have been there personally. They fished with the guides, they slept in the beds, they ate the food, and they could come back. Now, are there things that you wish you could rewrite like the weather and so forth and some fishing game activity you can't yeah, control that you cannot control that i you know what and i i spent three i spent three days in the bahamas with a good friend of mine uh, who had never fished for bonefish before we stayed at a really nice place and uh but the, the wind blew like stink for all three days and uh and we were locked on the weather channel and we were watching the isobars look they're starting to separate i think the wind's going to lay down and the the out front the flats were just milky white and so um, I, I felt really bad, but he said, you know, Tom, we've been doing this, both of us have been doing this for a long time. We call it the big boy clause. Okay, we're big boys. We knew this could happen when we signed on. Mm -hmm. And that's why we tell folks, if you can, take an extra day, because the weather is always the wild card, and you don't have any control over that. Um, but, yeah, but as far as, like, any horror stories, I can't really think of any, thank goodness, that, uh, uh, you know, we, we've had some great trips, and um, we, we, you know, but, but as far as those ones that you just say, oh, my gosh, I wish that never happened. I can't think of any. No, I, well, I mean, even, even on our trip last summer, um, speaking about the weather, you know, we showed up uh, the, at the equinox, the summer equinox, the right. 21st around yep. of June right. in um, Shefferville, fly in on a turboprop, uh, a plane that we had uh, chartered, mm -hmm. very nice plane, mm -hmm. and we land, and the... Uh, the pilot at the aerodrome says, uh, we do not fly to uh, Andre Lake today. If I don't want to fly, you don't want to fly. <laughs> exactly. And there was snow on the ground oh, in June. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we lost a day. Right, right. But that was fine. Oh, yeah. We were all relaxed. We had fun. We yeah. ate our poutine. We, oh, yeah. And, and oh, went yeah. to bed. And, and made the up, best of it. And we, and we flew in in the otter the next day and right. never missed a beat. Right. Although we missed a day of fishing, it didn't matter because the fishing was so damn good. Yeah, and yeah. that's why you go to those places, right, Tom? Exactly. Where, I mean, my arm was, I mean, a nine-pound landlocked salmon on right. day two. Right, right. And I, I look at the guy and I said, 
I don't know what you want. It's three thirty in the afternoon. I'm done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I can't. Right. My arm's not going to do another one. Right, <laughs> right. Well, I'll tell you what. You brought a skill set uh, that most people that get uh, to Mackenzie River Lodge aren't blessed with, and so it was almost unfair to the fishery up there to turn you loose on them. And that's what TJ came back at night and said, man, this guy is a fishing machine. Uh, all of the stuff that you uh, mastered down here in Maine, the only difference is if you do it right up there, those fish do their part. You know what I mean? I and do. It, you yeah. don't always have that res that reaction, that response down here. Uh, but man, that's a wonderful place. Big, big landlocks. And that was the attraction for me yeah. to Mackenzie because there's a wonder, lot of good brook trout camps in Labrador, but not too many that can uh, boast 10 pound or double digit. That's where the world record came from. Yeah. And so you vetted uh, Paul, Paul Ostegai. Ostegai. I'm saying that right, Ostegai. He's yeah. a great guy. Oh, yeah. uh, so you talked to some people that knew him and right. talked about people who had fished there. Yeah. And I know a lot of people that have gone there. Exactly. And so before we even got in the car, we already knew what we were getting ourselves into. Exactly. And right. so that's what you're, you know, that's kind of the service. Take the guesswork and don't make your clients do your R&D for you. No. That's a, that never works not. out. No, so we haven't really even got to the crown jewel of your uh, of your resume, Tom, and that is that I, I, I actually don't know the story, and I know our audience doesn't know the story, unless you talked about it when you were on the, the, the program. Yeah. But what I'm leading up to, audience, is uh, Kurt Gowdy ran the American Sportsman, extremely successful. Was he on ESPN? He was on other networks, but it ended on ESPN. It was on, it was on AS, uh, ABC. ABC. Right. And so Kurt Gowdy, household name, everyone knew who he was, passed away. The network advertisers, sponsors want to keep the thing going. And they start looking for someone to maybe create a spinoff, uh, and they're going to want to call it the New American Sportsman. We all watched it, I mean, in hindsight, but let's go back before it started. Uh, I think Cindy encouraged you to get involved. How did you, yeah, I know, how did, you know, you got a good face for radio, Tom. Right? <laughs> Television? Thanks, Mike. No, Thank no, you, you go. You tell me. Oh, what happened? Uh, well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a crazy story, but... Um, and like I said, it's a thin thread that pulls you through life. But I did a TV spot um, for L.L. Bean back in 95. Uh, they hosted a show called The Ultimate Outdoors with Wayne Pearson. And Wayne was just a good old boy from down south. He'd done a lot of turkey hunting and a lot of whitetail hunting. And um, But he had never fished for stripers. So they brought him up to Maine and they hired me or enlisted me to take him around. And we fished the New Meadows and I showed him some spots there. And... Um, and uh, it was a good show. It, went, it, it was well received, and, and we got some nice fish and all of that. And but the guy that was doing the field producing for it was a guy named Jerry Valancourt from ESPN. That's who aired the show, and um, he did all of their. Um, he was their production manager, and so uh, and he just happened to be from Lewiston, Maine, and uh, Valancourt, very main name. Very much. Oh yeah, and so great guy, tremendous sense of humor. We just hit it off, and so we stayed in touch. Um, the show aired, and he said, hey, it came out great, blah, blah, blah. And then, I mean, probably a year went by. I'd never heard from him again until I get a phone call. I said, hey, handsome, how would you like to book locations for the flagship of our outdoor block? It's a new show that we've resurrected. We bought the rights to it. It's called The New American Sportsman. Um, he said, you may remember the original with Kurt Gowdy, The American Sportsman. I said, yeah, that was the gold standard. for. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of outdoor programming to begin with. But that was the one. That was the one, ABC Wide World of Sports and 
the American sportsmen, with Bing Crosby and Bill Harris and all these other people that no one that people listening to have never heard from. Lee Wolf. Yeah, and Lee Wolf exactly. But uh, Kurt was a very um, famous uh, sportscaster. You know, he did the World Series and the Super Bowls and all this kind of stuff. Um, but they bought the rights to it, and the first year they hired um, Rick Schroeder, uh, maybe. He was a, a child actor, but he... Uh, oh, was, yeah, Ricky, Ricky, Ricky Schroeder. Schroeder. Ricky Schroeder. Oh, he did it? He hosted it the first year that they bought... Uh, they, well, they, he couldn't have been an outdoorsman you know, like you and I, Tom. Well, he was better than the next host. Okay, all right. Who was Dion Sanders. Oh, no, there's Dion. Okay, right. gotcha. I see where this is coming Right, from. Okay. and so... And uh, Dion was a great guy, but, but they were looking for A-list celebrities to host this series, right? And um, so they went Rick Schroeder, that lasted a year. Then Deion Sanders re-signed a contract with uh, the Falcons to play football. So ESPN went looking for a host. And um, I was already booking locations for it. And I'm thinking, this is a really good gig. I just like booking the locations. It's, it's very lucrative. And so I'm putting it out to all my buddies saying, hey, man, why don't you apply for this? Because they're looking for a new host. And Cindy, my wife, says, well, why don't you throw your name in the hat? And I'm going like, yeah, right. Like, I got a shot at that. She goes, just do it. And so I did. And um, Was there I, an audition? Well, it's, it's funny you ask. Uh, they said, well, um, why don't you come down to Bristol, the, the ESPN campus, for a screen test? And um, I said, okay. And then I get this flash of inspiration. And I called him back and I said, hey, listen, why don't I hire a guide on the Connecticut coast? You bring a film crew out and you'll get to see me in my native habitat. And they go, it's a deal. And so I met them down there. I had like, I had a Explorer that leaked more oil than the Exxon Valdez. Yes. It was falling apart, right? <laughs> and so I rented uh, a, a black Chevy Suburban, right? And From I, right here in Thompson, right? Right, 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 the Enterprise. Yeah. And I drove down there. Yeah. And, uh, and so we, uh, we hooked up with a guide. We went out for, the, and they set up all these different scenarios like to stump me. Well, if you're a fishing guide, you can handle just about anything. You've got like a master's degree in human relations, you know. Yeah. And it's just they kept throwing them, and uh, and it just it rolled, and it went it went well. So the next day, I got a phone call from the the suits down at, at ESPN, and they said the camera likes you. I said I'm not sure what that means. And they go, well, we uh, you know we'd like to talk to you about terms. And uh, he said, but first of all, we have a couple of questions. How do we know you're not going to fold like a warm tortilla when you get around these A-list celebrities? And I said, well, guys, I, I don't know how else to tell you this, but I'm, I, I believe God is no respecter of persons. He made people. And um, some of them may have more a talent of throwing a ball or singing or playing an instrument, but it doesn't make them any better than me. And so I hold no person in awe. I said, I think, I think I'll be able to handle it. And they go, okay, good. And so this was at the point in the negotiation where it could have gone either way. And they... And I could tell there was some hemming and hawing, because this is a big deal. This is the flagship that they're at. There's a multi-million dollar you know, budget for their program. And so I said, guys, let me ask you a question. So I realized these are all sports fans, right? And I said, you guys all see The Natural? And they go, yeah, you know, with Robert Redford's totally. baseball movie. Yeah. And I said, you remember the scene where this 35-year-old rookie comes up to Pops in the dugout? And he goes, and then Pops says, well, I don't know why they brought you in. A 35-year-old rookie, what am I going to do with a 35-year-old rookie? And he looked at him, he said, Pops, it's taken me a long time to get here. You play me, and you'll get the best I got. I was 50 years old when I used that line on them. There was a long silence, and they go, you got the job. And uh, 
Cindy started cheering, you know, and it was... Just, was she there? Yeah. Well, it was over the phone, but yeah, yeah. but it was like a... Uh, and the guy on the phone, this was like Mark Shapiro, the president of ABC. You know? I mean, these are all the mucky mucks, right? And they said, uh, and I remember Dan Bowen, the uh, producer, the, the, the executive producer, said, you don't realize, but you just want American Idol. And the next thing I know, Mike, I'm jet-setting around the world with Liam Neeson and Michael Keaton, Bobby Knight, Herschel Walker. And like I said, I, I don't know how, it, I feel a little like Forrest Gump. You know, I'm not sure how I got here, but I'm playing football with Herschel Walker on yeah. the deserted beach in Alaska and, and fishing and, and listening to Coach Knight give a pep talk to his fly box here on the main coast. And it was just like, it was a dream. It was a dream. And I did 30 of those episodes. Um, you were great, Tom. You did an awesome job. I enjoyed it. I mean, every minute. And the neat thing about it is that, you know, there was no script. It was all just kind of free flow. Uh, and uh, they followed us around. They had an amazing budget, uh, three camera shoots, helicopters, all this kind of stuff. Shannon Sharp to Hawaii. Just for the audience, uh, just so you know, this podcast is not scripted either. This is just free, free flow Tom right here. Just keep going, Tom. Sorry. Right, right. Let me find my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, th that, and the thing, the amazing thing was that it was, um, these guys were just so good at what they did, the camera guys and the sound guys. I mean, we never even knew they were there. And, uh, and yet they rolled for 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever, and they would go back to their edit suites and they would find a thread of the story, pull it through, and it was like, wow, this came out really good. Um, anyhow, it was real, it was a, a ratings bonanza. They were really happy. We had a three-year run for, uh, and for ESPN, that's pretty good. And um, we went, uh, so anyhow, it was a great, great uh, gig. I loved every minute of it. I got to travel the world over with the, you know, like I said, the, the, the big names, the A-list celebrities. But then I transitioned from that into another show, which I liked even more, and people said, because I, I tell folks, I always thought that the new American sportsman would be the high water mark of my TV career. Tom, I didn't know you did another show. Yeah, yeah, uh, I did. And, uh, but I was wrong. It, it wasn't the high water. The high water mark was a show called Escape to the Wild. Escape to the Wild was. Uh, part I take I take that back. Now, now you mentioned. Yeah, I I, I remember you doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did like seventy episodes mm. of Escape to the Wild, and the premise of that show, the show treatment as they call it, was. Uh, it was part Make-A-Wish, part Extreme Makeover, and part Punked. And uh, it was uh, the guys in the trades, okay, the, the guys who, you know, the plumbers and the roofers and all of these guys, the steel workers. And um, I would show up and we would call it the reveal. We would surprise them with some kind of scenario that kind of would almost set them off. And then I would step in and say, hey, hey, chill, chill out. Put the hammer down, man. I said, listen, I'm Tom Ackerman, host of Escape to the Wild and I'm here to take you on your dream trip to Alaska. And here's where it gets good for you. Pack your bags, because we're leaving in the morning. And it's just like a Hallmark moment, and everybody melts down. Mom and the kids come out, and it's just like, this is a feel-good show. And people, I went from A-list to Average Joes, from Blue Bloods to Blue Collars. Yeah. And I said, you know, I, I really enjoyed the Blue Collars yes. more than the Blue Bloods, only because they were so grateful. Everything that they got, they were great because they worked hard. That for this guy to go to Alaska would be like you and me going to the moon. Right. Okay. This oh. was totally out of reach for him. And I remember one guy. I, and in addition to surprising with the trip of a lifetime, I also got to sprinkle swag along the way. So we had big sponsors, Beretta and, and gun sponsors and loophole scopes and all that kind of stuff. And so I remember one guy. I, I it was called the secondary reveal in Colorado on an elk hunt. 
and I pulled the bolt out of his rifle when he was over at the lodge and he comes back to the cabin and I said hey why don't you grab your rifle we got to go on the range make sure we're on the paper he pulls his gun out and he goes son of I could tell he was upset he says my bolt's missing man my bolt where's my bolt I said oh, that's probably TSA man they probably forgot to put it in and he goes oh I can't believe it what am I going to do now I said hey just cool chill man chill I reached under the bunk and I pulled out this long skinny white box and I handed it to him and this is a, a steel worker, right? And he's rough and tough steel worker. He's got a Ruger, right? Yeah, yeah right. He starts yeah. shaking. I said, go ahead, man, open it up. He goes, what is it? I said, open it up. He opens it up. It's a brand new Tika T3, you know, uh, 300 wind mag with a, a, nine, two, a three to nine loophole scope on it. And he starts, like this tear wells up in his eye and rolls down his face. And I go, what's the matter? You don't like it? He goes, man, I worked hard my whole life. No one's ever given me nothing. I said, well, that's yours to keep, bro. I said, that's going home with you. And I'm telling you what, there's no better feeling in the world, you know. And uh, he cried, I cried, and uh, that was the that was the formula for every show. And I said these guys, most of them, had some tremendous hard hard luck stories, like sick children, military, you know, injuries, battlefield injuries. And I said most of them were dealt a really, really tough hand, but they made great plays with the hand they were dealt and I they were winners in every sense of the word and I loved hanging out with them yeah that, that's great Tom and you you know what you did is you just talked about what's important and why we live our lives and and uh, we'll get to the word why in a minute but you 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 had the taste of success working with the big the big folks and then you really did what made your heart go pitter pat which is to work with people that would really appreciate what you could bring to the table and my own little short story about that is some of the best clients that i ever guided were given a trip for christmas as grave diggers for a local funeral parlor in trenton maine and these two guys would carry the cooler yeah. and they'd want me to fish and they would you know mike whenever you need to go you don't get a million dollar guy saying, hey, Mike, whenever you need to go, you never hear that. No, no. So, you know, that's again, it's it's more about that's it's who you spend. You dance with the one who brung you yeah. and it's who you spend your time with. It's the company that you keep. Oh, yeah. You must have some fun stories to tell because so many things are out of your control. There must be some some fun story you can share from your perch. What, what, oh, what, yeah. You oh, got for, anything? For sure. Uh, well, you know, when I was doing the New American Sportsman, we were traveling over 150 days a year. So there was a, in a lot of ways, I felt like I was in a rock band. And uh, but I remember one time um, that I think we landed in LAX, and uh, we gathered all our gear, and we had the crew in the truck, and we're driving down. And uh, this was a long time ago, so 20 years ago. And here's a guy hitchhiking, and so we pull over, and I notice he only has one sandal. I said, "What happened? You lose a sandal?" He said, "No, man, I found one." <laughs> and I said, I said, only in California, right? No, man, I found one. I said, I'm not in Maine anymore, man. And, and uh, but so, so many crazy things like that happen. And and I remember once I used to get the rental vehicles, and uh, uh, you you may have to edit this, but I remember going to the, the car rental counter and there's a little gal behind there. I'm doing the paperwork and sign here, initial here, and I hear the door open. I hear this click, 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 high heels across the tile floor. And I, I, I could just feel the tension in the room rise. And I'm going, here comes a woman with an attitude. She walks up. She kind of muscles. I'm a big guy. She muscles me out of the way. And she throws these keys on the counter. They slide and stop right in front of this little gal. And she goes, that car you rented me smells like a French whorehouse. And with that, she wheels around and storms out. And that little girl looks at me and she goes, 
how she knows what a French whorehouse smells like. <laughs> <laughs> I gave her a high five. We laughed so hard that I said, you know, hon, I said, you still have a job because you bit your tongue. I said, sometimes good customer service is not about what you say. It's about what you don't say. And we laughed. But, I mean, just so many of those stories happen when you're on the road that you just, you hope you can remember them because they're so rich. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, right. I love hearing that, Tom. That's fantastic. Tom, you go off and talk about the why. Yeah. You do things for the why more than the where. Yeah, no, no doubt. I'm a why guy. Uh, and, and people say, well, the how is important. I said, yeah, but the how is irrelevant until you have a strong why. And I remember sitting in a doctor's office one time. This was kind of an epiphany for me about 25, 30 years ago. I'm flipping through a magazine, I don't know, maybe Men's Health magazine. And it says, a great big page that says, how come some people have boundless energy for whatever life throws at them, and others just kind of drag themselves through life. It's like everything is a chore and a burden. What's the difference? And it says, turn the page. And I'm thinking, I was a little cynical. I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be an ad for like a vitamin supplement or meditation or exercise or something like that. And I turned the page, and what in this little box in the middle of this gatefold was one sentence that changed my life. And it said, energy flows from a sense of purpose. And I went, whoa, and I flashed back on my Thoreau days, and I says, he wrote, Behold the field mouse, he has a purpose, and his eyes are bright with it. And I went, whoa, you know what? And so I realized that my purpose is helping people enjoy the outdoors. And if it involves hosting TV or guiding or hosting a trip or booking location or any of that kind of stuff, if it fits under that umbrella of helping people enjoy the outdoors, odds are my tail's going to be wagging. And so I know people that are out there, they're looking for their why. What is their why? And I've, I've, I've really encouraged them to do some inventories, take some time alone, think about who am I and what matters most in my life. That will inform and maybe set the trajectory for the rest of your life. And uh, But anyhow, that's, a, that's a, a big part of why I do what I do, because whether it's kids, old people, or everyone in between, there's something about time in the outdoors. And I, like I've worked with a lot of wounded warriors, I call it a place of healing and a place of hope. There's something that, like, restorative uh, about time in the outdoors, and it's a it's just a beautiful thing to be able to share it. Mm. And we almost lost you, Tom. Last year, Tom, you had a major, major heart attack. And I know just by because I know you. You know we we're friends. Right. It made you reset a few a few switches too. You were you're evaluating your life now. Like, what's this, what's the, the line you're using now? You're waking up like. Oh, yeah. I wake up every day and I'm just happy to be alive. I said, thank you, God, because um, I, it's called uh, uh, every day is a gift. That's why they call it the precious present. OK, and it's like I don't take anything for granted. There's a there's a little sticker on the fridge that I've read a million times, but it took on new significance after my cardiac event. That's what the doctors call it. Cardiac okay. event. It says, don't sweat the small stuff. And it's all small stuff. It's all small stuff. But yeah, I had a massive heart attack on December 18th of 2021. Uh, they rushed me to the ER. Uh, I was flatlined. They shocked me several times to bring me back. Uh, 30 days later, 21 in ICU, they, um, they did nine and a half hours of surgery. They patched up, they did the plumbing, they rewired, and uh, I went through cardiac rehab. And I'm just, I'm just I'm happy to be alive. And this is during COVID. Yeah, I was during COVID. So none of us could come see you. Right, no, not, not even family. But I'll tell you what, and this is this better not air before Thursday because there, there, there are 
some people that I wanted to thank, but one in particular was a, was, and this is an amazing story, but was a um, ICU nurse named Jessie. That's all I'm going to tell her first name. Uh, but uh, she was incredible, constant, I mean, I mean, compassionate, competent, caring, uh, and um, she kept me alive for, I think, you know, the doctors come in, we had great surgeons and all that kind of stuff, but she was the one constant. And this was, like you said, during COVID. So it was like 12 hours on, 12 hours off, like unbelievably stretched thin. So I mean, they were at half staff. They were stressed to the max. And yet she always had the most unbelievable attitude, kind, compassionate, good sense of humor, all of that kind of stuff. I nominated her for an award called the Daisy Award, which is a big deal if you're a nurse. And there's only a few of them given out in the state of Maine. And I found out this week that she was selected as, a, as the winner. And uh, so that's going to be next Thursday at Maine Med. And I want to be down there uh, to help her. I, they said, you want to come down? I said, if I'm still around. <laughs> <laughs> right? Don't take me in. Not right. dead yet. Right. I'm not, not dead yet. Dead yet. Oh. And she, but uh, anyhow, it's like I said, the, uh, this, here's, my philosophy in a nutshell is, um, is the secret to living is giving. Uh, and I've seen a lot of wealthy people that spend their lifetime getting, and they get to the you know that age and stage, and they go, you know what, that's really not that rewarding. But then you give something expecting nothing in return, and you go, that's a hoot, and that's where it's at. And some people never get to that point in life, but the ones that do, I think, are the real wealthy ones. I love to give gifts. Yeah, isn't it great? Receiving gifts is only 40% right. of what giving a gift is. Right. That's the 100%. Right. That's the feeling. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and and as a guide and as a host and all the things that you are and all the things that we both share together in terms of our interest, we're afforded the opportunity to give that gift all the time. Exactly. You know, I just worked with a group in New Hampshire yesterday and, you know, taught six people that didn't know how to fly cast how to do it. And they couldn't shake me. They're rattling my hand and their oh, handshake, know. you know, thank you, Mike, so much. I really, yeah. they're treating me like I'm God I, I and I'm just the I next know. guy. Exactly. I tell them, folks, it's it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Yeah. All you're doing, you're just, you're just sharing and then paying it forward. But, I mean, I've, the same experience at the Bean Fly Fishing School is I'd be there at the end of the graduation, you know, where they have little certificates and all that kind of stuff. And, and they come through. I said, I hope you enjoyed your weekend. People say, oh, yeah, it was fun. I, other people say, that's for me. I've been looking for that my whole life. And they're off and running. And all you can do is sow good seed and hope it falls on good soil. So the ones that see it, see it. The ones that don't, don't. But the ones that do and take it up, they go, that's a life changer for them in so many ways. Mm. And so that to me is, um, you know, it, it, that, that to me is what success looks like. And that's, you know, and that came to us in the same form. I'm not a particularly smart guy. You're, you're a pretty smart guy, but you're not the smartest guy I know, Tom. But experienced. Yeah. How many days have you spent on the water where someone that you were guiding taught you something? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, it happens all the time. Right. So when I share one of those little tidbits, say, hey, let me show you why you do this, or let right. me show you why they do that, it's not because I figured it out. No, it's because no. I did it wrong so long that someone said, hey, Mike. Exactly. And that's what a guide is, and that's yeah. what a trip host is. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and when I get to know somebody and I feel safe, I'll share this with them because I've had so many people come on my boat. Some guys are so full of themselves. And, you know, they're all down in Connecticut, we do this. And I said, with all due respect, I said, you know what? And please take this in the spirit that it's given. I believe the foundation of brilliance is admitting you're stupid. And they bristle a little bit, you know, and some of them just go. Oh. But I said, really, uh, maybe in Connecticut that works. But 
you know, I've been doing this for a while up here. You may want to, you know, before you blaze a trail, why don't you come on down the road a little bit and just see. Let's try it and see if it works. And if not, hey, I'm open to ideas and suggestions. I don't have all the answers. But, you know, that, but that foundation of brilliance is admitting you're stupid. I love that line uh, because I think it applies in a lot of cases in my own life so much. You know, it's like, yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, just to put a, a, a kind of a cherry on this whole thing or, or uh, you know, the why is, is very, very important. And someone, you know, and, and like I said, there's so many different reasons that people go fly fishing. You know, some of it's the, it's the challenge, you know, and the pursuit and all that. And some it's the camaraderie and the fellowship yeah. and who's going to be, and all that kind of stuff. It's just like you can look down all that through this. And then there's what I call the, the spiritual dimension, time in the great outdoors, time in creation, and time to reflect on your special relationship with the Creator. And that to me is a, it's very is core and central. I remember being in a boat with Liam Neeson in Belize. We're filming a bonefish show for the New American Sportsman. And we had a little downtime. So he puts his hand over his mic. He goes, Tom, do you believe in God? And I go, yeah, yeah, I do. He goes, why? And I said, well, just look around. I said, where do you think all this came from? You know, and so uh, basically I told him, look, I spent my life looking at uh, nature through a telescope and a microscope and wherever I looked I saw design and order and complexity and beauty. I said my question to you is how can you have design without a designer? It's like sitting down to a wonderful gourmet meal and saying I don't believe in a chef. You know it's just like no I, I, I'm not the smartest tool in the shed as you pointed out. No, no. Thank you Michael. But I did figure that out. It's yeah. not about me yeah. and uh, there's a whole lot more that I don't understand uh, than I do. But I, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm happy to be alive. The doctors did say this one thing, and I saw lots of doctors in follow-up and cardiac rehab, and they all said, you know, your heart blew up. I mean, there's no way we can explain that you're still alive. And they said, uh, and they all said the same thing. They said, man, we saw your chart. It's a miracle you're still alive. And I said the same thing. I said, well, you know, uh, there's only one person I know in the miracle business, and I'm going to give him the credit. Yeah. Because that's that's all I know to do. Yeah, yeah. that's true. And you know, Tom, I, I, you, you've been a gift in my life. I, I, I hope that you and I have many, many more years together. And we're not getting near the end, but we're just at the beginning. And uh, I know that this podcast was great. I really enjoyed just having the opportunity to sit down with you in the Classic Connections headquarters, and have you share some of those stories because I've had so much. I've gained so much pleasure myself from just hearing the stories that you tell. And also, not just the stories, but like, you know, this is where you need to position yourself in order to find happiness. Uh, it, be it with a fly rod or be it with a shotgun or just be it in life in general with your family and, and the people that you love. So, Tom, thank you for your time today, and uh, I really appreciate it. I value your friendship, Mike, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Flyline Podcast has completed the first season with these wonderful 12 episodes. We loved every minute we spent sharing stories from and with our guests. We will be taking a short break as we and our main legends and luminaries are enjoying the best part of the main fly fishing season and feeling more obligated to spend time in the outdoors than in front of a microphone discussing it. Great news for our podcast fans and followers. We already have many great guests and episodes lined up for the second season. Please go to flylinepodcast.com and subscribe to receive notifications when season two is ready to resume. Until then, go catch a fish. Mm -hmm.